Welcome to this mini-series of podcasts about the Quran. I'm Nikolai Sinai of the University of Oxford and I'm grateful to the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council for supporting the production of these four short talks. We have spent much of the previous three episodes approaching the Quran from a historical perspective. So we've asked questions like, what do we know about where and when the Quranic texts were first proclaimed? Or what kind of audience did the Quran originally address? In this episode, I would like to look at the Quran from a different but complementary perspective, which is a literary perspective. There are actually good historical reasons for doing so. Um, I would argue that a principal reason for why the Quran managed to establish itself as a text that was recognized as divine revelation by a community of believers is that it is compelling and effective literature. Uh, it is worth noting that this is also a cornerstone of the way in which the Quran is viewed in the Islamic tradition, where one often encounters the idea that one of the miraculous proofs for Muhammad's being a genuine prophet is the unsurpassable literary perfection of the Quran. Uh, Islamic theologians maintained that the Quran quite literally incapacitated anyone who might attempt to produce a piece of writing that possessed equal literary merit. So what is a literary approach to the Quran? What does it mean to read the Quran as literature? I would like to approach this question by briefly looking at a medieval Islamic treatise in defense of the Quran's literary inimitability. It's Ajaz in Arabic. Um, the text was written by a scholar named Al-Khattabi who died towards the end of the 10th century. And the way he proceeds is to list the number of objections that he says have been raised against the Quran's literary qualities. And he then goes on to refute these objections. One of the objections set out by Al-Khattabi concerns a passage that occurs in Surah 19. It promises those who believe and do good deeds that God will assign them love or create for them love, to give a very literal translation of the Arabic, which runs, سَيَجْعَلُ لَهُمُ الرَّحْمَنُ wudda. The objection considered by Al-Khattabi is that the Quranic wording, God will assign them love, on the face of it, seems to be a rather awkward way of saying, God will love them. So why doesn't the Quran use a more idiomatic phrase? Uh, Al-Khattabi replies that the Quranic formulation is by no means simply synonymous with God will love them. Rather, what the verse means is really that God will make the believers objects of the love of other believers. So the verse isn't a clumsy statement about God's love for the believers, but rather a perfectly elegant statement about the believers being rewarded with the love of other believers. So what is Al-Khattabi doing here? He, he is assuming that when the Quran makes a statement and there's something subtly anomalous about it, we cannot simply um, substitute this statement by a more straightforward one that lacks such an edge. Al-Khattabi presupposes that the Quranic text is constructed with the utmost care. Quranic words aren't just approximate formulations that an interpreter can simply exchange against others that make roughly the same point and are perhaps even stylistically superior. Now, this approach to the Qur'an is obviously determined by Al-Khattabi's belief that the author of the Qur'an is God and that God expresses himself with supreme care. But the way in which, say, a scholar of English literature might interpret a play by Shakespeare or a novel by George Eliot isn't actually all that different. In reading secular pieces of literature too, we assume, at least to a considerable degree, that details which at first sight we might be apt to overlook or dismiss as trivial or accidental, carry significance. And that a literary text is carefully worded and constructed. That to change it, or as it were to improve it, risks compromising its literary meaning. 
So even literary texts that we regard as squarely human artefacts are assumed to be semantically fraught in a way that transcends ordinary everyday prose. Uh, something similar is perhaps the case for legal texts, but that's an idea we cannot pursue here. So the way in which medieval Islamic scholars have read the Quran as a literary exemplar does exhibit some very real common ground with secular modes of literary reading. Of course, if a scholar of the Quran takes a historical approach to the text, then this assumption of semantic fraughtness will have limits. For example, let's consider the fact that the 57th surah of the Quran is traditionally known by the title Al-Hadid, meaning iron, because one of its verses contains a reference to the God-given blessings that are inherent in iron. It is sometimes pointed out that one of the various isotopes of the element iron has an atomic mass number of 57, meaning that it has a total of 57 protons and neutrons, which is the same as the number that the surah of iron has in the canonical text of the Quran. And this is then put forward as exemplifying the fact that the Quran encapsulates modern scientific discoveries and that, that have not yet been made in the 7th century, and that the Quran is therefore uh, of divine origin. Now, many will find this argument far from compelling. Um, to be sure, if we already assume the Quran to be divine revelation, then it is not unreasonable to entertain the idea that perhaps God, the presumed author of the Quran, might have chosen to convey certain surplus information by a detail that we would not consider to be semantically relevant in ordinary texts, namely through the Quran's chapter numbering. But if one doesn't already embrace the Quran's divine origin, one is probably going to be inclined to view the fact that the Surah of Iron is Surah number 57 in the Quran, and the fact that one among several isotopes of iron has a mass number of 57 as a curious coincidence that really doesn't prove anything. And a historical scholar would add that we really shouldn't attach any interpretive significance to this coincidence because a historical scholar would insist on interpreting the Quran non-anachronistically. He or she would look to ascribe to it meanings that were thinkable by its original audience, who of course had no notion of isotopes. So what to some believers may seem a perfectly reasonable way of, of reading the Quran carefully may appear to be arbitrary overinterpretation to a historical scholar or a non-believer, even if he or she otherwise has a lot of sympathy with a literary approach to the Quran. But despite such divergences, I would like to flag up some aspects of the Quran's literary dimension in which medieval and modern Islamic scholarship and modern Western scholarship, whether conducted by Muslims or non-Muslims, do exhibit considerable convergence and arguably a significant potential for dialogue and cooperation that has not been fully tapped yet. By way of leading up to this, let us consider two further potential objections to the Quran's literary merit that are discussed by Al-Khattabi. The first is that Quranic verses or verse groups can sometimes seem to lack any link to what comes before and what comes after. As Al-Khattabi puts it, an idea is sometimes introduced between two units of discourse and has nothing in common with them in category and genre. This is not deemed beautiful, nor is it appreciated by rhetoricians and masters of good expression. It is rather best for discourse to be organized and subdivided into sections, each having its own place and genre not intruding on the genre of others. So the charge cited by Al-Khattabi is that Quranic surahs can appear to lack structure and coherence, meaning that they can seem to be random aggregations of disconnected verses and verse groups. Al-Khattabi 
illustrates this with a passage from Surah 75. At the beginning of this passage, in verses 14 and 15, there is a general accusation of man, and a similar tone is struck at the end of the passage in verses 20 and 21, which chide the addressees for failing to desire the world to come. But sandwiched in between these two verse groups, there is an address of Muhammad that admonishes him not to be hasty in reciting the revelations granted to him. So there seems to be a disconcertingly abrupt topic shift between verses 15 and 16 and then again between verses 19 and 20. A perceived lack of structure and coherence in the Quran also figures in another objection that is considered by Al-Khattabi. They say, if the surahs of the Quran were arranged in such a way that the reports and stories of past communities occurred in one surah, and sermons and parables occurred in another surah, and legal rulings in yet another, that would have been a better arrangement, would have been easier to memorize, and would have expressed the intended meaning more clearly. So individual surahs mix different topics. A given surah might have a bit of narrative and law and exhortation, and the same topic might also come up in other surahs. For example, um, there are more than 10 surahs that allude to or retell the story of Noah and the deluge. Uh, we don't have time to review Al-Khattabi's responses to these difficulties, but the problem whether and in what sense Quranic surahs are coherent and well-structured compositions is clearly a key issue for a literary approach to the Quran. And this issue has received a lot of interest both by 20th century Islamic exegetes writing in Arabic uh, or Urdu and in recent Western scholarship written in English, French or German. An important milestone in the quest for understanding the structure of Quranic surahs was the discovery by a German professor of Arabic studies, Angelika Neuwert, that many of the short and medium length surahs can be subdivided into three parts, um, the middle part of which is often occupied by narratives about earlier prophets, such as Noah or Moses. A prime example of this tripartite surah structure is Surah 37, whose middle section is devoted to a cycle of narratives about Noah, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Lot and Jonah, all of whom are presented as preachers of monotheism. The fact that this structure recurs in a significant number of further surahs suggests that we are faced with some sort of standard template here, and recognizing such recurring structural models provides at least some answer to the problem of Quranic structure, just as the structure of an individual poem that happens to be a sonnet is illuminated by an understanding of the peculiar rhyme scheme and structure that is common to all sonnets of the same kind. Regarding the issue of textual coherence in the Quran, careful analysis will often discover that the different verse groups making up a given surah are far more interconnected than may initially appear to be the case. For example, many Quranic surahs are punctuated by recurring words or phrases that induce a considerable measure of coherence at the rhetorical level at least, even if such lexical repetitions straddle obvious changes in topic. And even Quranic topic shifts may, upon closer analysis, turn out to fulfill an intelligible literary function. Uh, this is nicely illustrated by the passage from Surah 75 that we have briefly examined above. As we saw earlier, verses 16 to 19, which address Muhammad in the second person singular, appear to occupy an oddly parenthetical position that separates two verse groups that are thematically related. Uh, a general chastisement of man and a condemnation of the text's audience for their insufficient mindfulness of the world to come. 
Now, if one reads the Surah's 40 verses from beginning to end, they form an almost continuously ascending crescendo that is only interrupted by the second person singular address of Muhammad in verses 16 to 19. Uh, the verses immediately before this seemingly parenthetical section recount some of the dramatic events that will take place on the day of resurrection. When eyesight is blinded and when the moon is eclipsed and when the sun and the moon are lumped together, on that day men will say, where is a place of refuge? But no, there is no sanctuary. Your abode on that day is with your Lord. On that day men will be apprised what he has accomplished and neglected. Yet man is a clear witness against himself, even though he proffers his excuses. These verses are then followed by our seemingly disconnected parentheses, verses 16 to 19, which are in turn followed by a second person accusation of the audience. You love the world that hastens on and forsake the world to come. And this then segues into a dramatic contrast of the blessed and damned on the day of judgment. Some faces on that day will be radiant, beholding their Lord, and other faces on that day will be scowling, thinking that they are being pierced. So read in context, the function of verses 16 to 19 would appear to be what literary scholars describe as retardation. Just when the surah has led us up to the moment when humans will confront their divine judge and, and face salvation or damnation, there is a sort of cliffhanger. And the text inserts an aside to the Quranic messenger that delays the anticipated climax and, and thereby achieves a further heightening of suspense. And the expected climax, the separation of the judged into the saved and the damned, is then finally delivered after the retarding aside. So what at first uh, might appear to be a random thematic leap actually makes a lot of compositional sense, uh, at least if we are willing to give the Quran the benefit of the doubt and to see it as a carefully constructed piece of literature. This impression that verses 16 to 19 are not a haphazard parenthesis but are functionally integrated with the surrounding text is reinforced by the fact that verse 16, which opens the verse group addressing the Quranic messenger and verse 20, which opens the following verse group, exhibit a noticeable lexical link. Both employ words that are derived from one and the same Arabic word root, which connotes haste. Now the claim that Quranic surahs are structured and coherent is far more easily borne out for short and medium-sized surahs than for the longest surahs in the Quran, such as Surah 2, uh, which takes about two hours to recite properly. These long surahs defy easy structural analysis and the challenge of making sense of them is very much at the forefront of current literary research on the Quran. This slide shows one way of, sub, uh, of subdividing Surah 2 into several major sections or as literary scholars sometimes say panels. Unlike the basic structure of Surah 37, which we've looked at before, that of Surah 2 isn't really mirrored by any other Quranic text and, and the organization of other long surahs, such as Surahs 3, 4 or 5, is at least to some degree similarly unique. So these texts don't seem to be modeled on a standard template anymore and it seems very likely that such lengthy and complex compositions are a product of literary growth over a certain period of time. Uh, for example, it has been conjectured that what is now the second part of Surah 2, consisting in a long polemic against the Israelites and, and by extension also against the Quran's Jewish contemporaries, may originally have been a self-standing surah that was only secondarily framed by an introductory prologue, uh, part one, and by the third part, which narrates the founding of the Meccan Kaaba by Abraham. The fourth part of the text, which is the longest legal section in, in the entire Quran, 
may well at some point in time have been a self-standing collection of commandments, uh, or it may have emerged as a sort of legal appendix to the text, uh, an appendix that gradually expanded until it reached its present size. Reconstructing the likely growth of the long surahs is a particularly exciting subfield of contemporary Quranic studies. But it must be said that the basic notion that a Quranic surah might be the end product of various processes of insertion, accretion and expansion is far from alien to the classical Islamic tradition. For example, Islamic sources preserve a report that describes how Muhammad would instruct his scribes to incorporate recently revealed passages into existing surahs. So just like the analysis of the Quran against the background of earlier Jewish and Christian literature, there's no reason to think that the attempt to reconstruct the growth of Quranic surahs over time is inherently inimical to Islamic belief. Uh, and there's actually a lot of material in traditional Islamic commentaries on the Quran that is supremely helpful for this kind of endeavor, but much of this remains to be explored.